Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Turn to it, and um, we're going to pick up chapter 2, um, verses 11 to 20. We've covered so far the idea that God has a plan for us as a people and for each one of us individually, and he's calling each of us to himself, to live in that power that he alone can provide. And he has made us alive in Christ, that we are no longer spiritually dead, but we are alive through Jesus. And that vertical relationship, if you like, that relationship with us and Father God is good through Jesus. It's all good. And this morning, the verses we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at, if you like, rather than the vertical, we're going to be looking at the horizontal, the idea that through Christ, our relations with each other can be good and should be good. And we're called to be a people who demonstrate that. So let's read some of these verses together and then we'll jump into another. There is a lot here this morning and I'm going to have to go at quite a pace. I'm sorry about that, but we want to try and get to a point where we covered most of it anyway. Therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been also been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. So this morning, we're going to be talking about the idea that inside the church, there are people who outside the church would never get along, but are now living together in peace. Maybe some of you have read the work of Dr. Seuss. The belly sneeches. Those with the stars on their belly and those without the stars on their belly. And the ones with the stars on their belly thought they were far more important than the ones without. And they didn't treat the ones without the stars on their belly very well. 
I'll leave you to read the story yourself. You can look it up and you can look it online and various things. But we're going to be talking about who's in and who's out this morning. Who is in and who is out? At the beginning of this text, we have a very clear case study, if you like, of the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Gentile and the, the Jew. And they exist in this state of hostility, Paul says, and there's a dividing wall between them. And the word hostility is brought up twice in this text, and actually it's the same word that's used for hate in other places in the scripture. And ironically for Paul, the lawman, it's the law with his commandments and regulations that's created this barrier. It's the Mosaic law of Moses and the Old Testament and the rules and regulations of how to live a holy life. This gift that the Jews were given that was supposed to be, if you like, enabling them to demonstrate what it was to be a holy nation. And it was supposed to be enabling them to demonstrate what godliness looks like, what goodness looks like, and so be a blessing to the nations. Well, it had become, in reality, the basis for hostility, the basis for excluding people. And the Jews began to despise the Gentiles because they didn't have the law. And the Gentiles began despising the Jews because... They did have the law and they lorded it over them. And as a result of this hostility, this good gift that had been given by God to be a blessing to all people, actually, developed into this thing which led to hate between races. Now if we pull ourselves away from that for a few moments, the Jew and the Gentile thing, and it's important, I granted, and we could spend a lot of time on that this morning, but we're not going to because I want to, in this case out of this polyuniversal kind of truth or a universal idea, and that is this, that when God gives good gifts to us, talent, strengths, there's something in the human heart that takes those good gifts, elevates them up to an absolute value, and then looks at everybody that doesn't have what we have and enables us to look down on them. And potentially causes us to despise them. And this good gift can become the basis of hostility. And this is not particularly true just of individuals, but particularly between groups of people, races, cultures, classes of people. Often the way we get our identity is to define ourselves by taking what's good about us, what's distinctive, and by lifting up and then judging others against it and saying, oh, look at them. They're not like us. They're not as good as us. In other words, often we can grab onto an identity which will actually buy looking down on others and excluding others. The perfect spot in the Bible, I guess, that demonstrates this is the prayer of the Pharisee, Luke 18, verse 11. The Pharisee lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays and he says, Oh Lord, I thank thee that I am not like other people. And of course... We thank people. We thank the Lord that we're not like other people. We're nothing like the star belly sneeches. I came across this story recently. A story of a man who was shipwrecked on a desert island. And he was the only person on the island. And he was there for about a year. And he was all alone. He was just alone. And when he was eventually rescued, they found that because he was a very devout religious man, he built, he'd built two little churches on the island. Two shacks. 
And the rest of you ask him, why did you go to the trouble of building two churches? That was just the one of you. And he says, oh, you always have to have two churches. One to go to and one to stay away from. <laughs> That's how you know who you are. Do you get the principle here? The principle is that sometimes in the human heart we can take what is good, what is good about us, if you like, or what's good, and we can use it to make other people feel inferior. And we can get our identity and our definition and our worth from these things and we can moralise them and they become equivalents of a law or the law that was given to the Jews. This is a couple of my, my long Long-standing friends, uh, John on the right and Marcel on the left. We play golf together. We go on various golf days together. Uh, a couple of years we always go on. One of them is run by an ex-policeman. And it's Marcel's friend. And he, he's, he's a white guy. And it's really, really fussy. It is run to the letter to the time. We turn up at 8.30. Breakfast is at 8.38. We tee off at 9.02 and don't be late, otherwise you miss your slot and then you've got to wait to the end. And then we go to another golf day run by John and his mates. And they're all black and I grew up with them and it's slightly more relaxed. We rock up about 10, see who's there, see who arrives. And sometime we'll play, maybe 11, 11.30. And we have this banter that goes on between us, John and me and Marcel and uh, Bacchus and a few other guys. Two perfectly good days, in fact, brilliant days, they're just different. They're just different. Each culture, and John's from St. Vincent and I grew up going into school with, I was only one of three white guys, the rest of everyone was black, most of the kids were from St. Vincent. And it was great fun and I really didn't understand it at first, but we got the hang of it. They're just more relaxed about things. In a different kind of way. And sometimes we can take things like that and turn them. And we'd all say in this room, well not us, not us politically correct, enlightened middle class people, None of us would ever do that. No one would disdain somebody for their race or their culture or their politics. Those poor people of a different political suasion, the, idiot, the idiots who are running, ruining the world or ruining our country, who don't believe the right things. Now we can joke about this, and, but the reality is actually these things magnified, taken to the extremities, is, is why... The earth has been red with human blood for hundreds of years. Centuries. So what is God's solution? That's the problem, but what is God's solution? Well, it's a fascinating solution because there's a very strong term used in the text. Verse 14, I think it is, isn't it? And nobody's quite sure, actually, how to translate it. It's translated in different versions in different ways. But God brought about peace, it says, and abolishing in his flesh the law and the commandments and regulation and purpose, was created to himself one new human out of two. Now we understand that the Jew and the Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, that pretty much covers everybody in the world, right? You're either one or the other. And what Paul is saying is God's will is 
that inside the church, he wants to create one new person or one new man, or a better way of saying it is one new humanity. Humanity, and it's a strong word. See, when you become a Christian, the most profound thing of all, Paul says, the thing that that defines you above everything else is this connection, is this connection with Christ, is this entry into this new relationship, this new covenant relationship with those who have been through the same experience. When you've been convicted of sin and received the grace of God, you now know a stronger connection than those around you You, that may be of the same race, that may be of the same culture, that may even be of the same family. Actually, there's a new connection here. And Paul's saying, this is what the church is like. Actually, it becomes this new humanity, this new race of people you like, a nation, a new body of people. I'm so aware of this when I go to Ghana and visit there. I've got nothing to offer them in some respects. So little of our lives match up. There's... So little of us cultural experience is is relevant to each other. And yet, there is this profound connection when we gather and encounter Jesus and talk about Jesus and what he's done and who he is and how he has transformed lives. It's way deeper than the people I grew up with. They might be of the same street and of the same background and the same generation, but this connection somehow is deeper You see, Paul says, this can be done because God's done something that's never been done before. To get over all these divisions in the human race that are keeping us from living in peace. He's done something that changes everything. What the gospel does is, it transforms the heart. It goes after the heart. Now, in a place like Hamisham, we here rightly believe that racism is a terrible thing. And the Bible states right from the very beginning that racism is an abomination. It's an awful thing. He said, God, everyone was made and created in the image of God. And we are equal status and equal value before the Lord. And Abraham says, you know, I've come to make all nations, all nations, part of this family. Moses You know, he marries this black lady and there are others that don't like it and God punishes them. Peter, in chapter 10 of Acts, he says, you know, God accepts everyone from every nation. If they fear him and they do what's right, God is accepting of you. God goes after the heart and says, you know, this is wrong. And the world says racism is wrong, but it goes after it in a different way. It goes after the mind and it says, we're going to rebuke and we're going to scold people and we're going to educate people until racism is gone. And these aren't entirely bad things, but it won't work. Because the problem actually is in the heart. And the problem, well, it goes back to Genesis 1. It goes back to right the start of Scripture. You know, when, when we get that story of people turning away from God, turning to sin... And deciding to be proud and independent people. And Romans 1 says that all people know, deep down, this separation and this disconnection and 
that they actually should be in relationship with God, but we repress it and we build in ourselves a deep insecurity. Everyone knows there's something not quite right, there's something not quite working, but it's fundamental in us. And instead of turning to God, what we try and do is bolster something of our identity, something that, that sense of being, that sense of being right. And we do it in many ways. And one of the ways we do it is that we take what's strong about us and what lifts us up and we moralise it and we make it an ultimate value and we look down on other people who are different and excluded. And that way we get our identity. And the Bible says we have to change our heart. We have to restructure the way we think and develop an identity around this new idea. The gospel comes and it destroys, if you like, the apparatus for comparison. The pecking order apparatus, if you like. Every other human being, the idea that every other human being uses this way to form identity, the gospel comes and it says, no, that is not how you form your identity. And Paul uses this phrase, the dividing wall of hostility, when he separates about these two groups. And that's actually a literal wall in the temple. There was a literal wall and the more holy ones, i.e. the Jews in their eyes, were able to get further towards the presence of God than the Gentiles were. So people reading this at that time would have understood exactly what he's on about. Verses 17, it says, He came and preached peace to you, those who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For both, through the Father, by one spirit, have access. The Gentiles didn't have the law. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have that moral framework. And the Jews had the law. They had the Bible. And they used it. And they had the tabernacle and the prayers and stuff. And both, it says in this verse, needed to hear the gospel of peace. Both needed to be reconciled to God. Both of them need to be brought back to God. The gospel comes in. And it says we are all equal recipients of grace. That all have fallen short. That we all need forgiveness. That our righteousness hangs on not if we are right. Not if we're better than somebody else. Not if we are in charge or superior or anything else. Our gospel says our righteous, our rightness hangs on this word of righteousness. And that righteousness comes through Christ. And that's how we enter into this new humanity. And once we get this idea that nothing we do will ever make us right. Because Jesus has done that. And we're not superior to anybody in any other way. Only that we have met Christ. And in him we have been redeemed. We have been saved. We have been forgiven. That's where our rightness comes from. That's how we are right before God. And in that, Paul goes to say, in that, Once you get that, once you accept that and embrace that, then you are enter into this new way of thinking, this new 
Well, he uses three examples in a minute. We'll look at those. He says, consequently, because of that, we are. Consequent, and it's this kind of homecoming that happens when we recognise that, when we accept it, when we draw ourselves into that. See, it's the way things were always intended to be. Paul tells us, consequently, we were this. We were foreigners and aliens. Simply put, a land where you don't understand the principles by which it was supposed to be organised and run. And you don't know the language, you don't know how to behave, you don't know how to act. And have you ever felt like that? Paul says to his readers, you were foreign aliens, but now, now you're not that anymore. Psalm 90, David talks about the idea that the place for the human soul to really find home is in God. And there's some of that idea here that actually you now enter into this, this nation, this family, this people, this being, that is the place your soul will be at home and will be at peace. And if your soul is at peace, if you are at peace, then perhaps you might be peaceable to others. God is our eternal home. You're created for that home. What is home? Well, home is where you, you get a feeling that things are the way they're supposed to be. You know, home is where you set up your preferences and your desires, isn't it? To this place that fits your, your life. One of the main themes of the Bible, actually, spiritually speaking, is that we're not homeless. We're just exiles. But there is a home place. There is a place for us. There's a wonderful word, um, Martin Heiger, the German philosopher, and Freud used this word, umheimlichkeit. It's a German word. Only the German language would have such brilliant words. Umheimlichkeit. And it means this strange eeriness, this uncanniness, this kind of feeling of being out of place, radically not sure of where we are. Not sure of what our purpose is or this place of just angst. In Christ, that's not how we exist. I think we all want, don't we? That place where love never comes to an end. Where the things we do really count and really make a difference. Where our lives have meaning and purpose. A feeling of being home. And Paul says, in this last part of the text, he says, this is what has happened in Christ. We're no longer strangers and foreigners. And he uses three illustrations, and there's a slight mixed metaphor here, so I apologise for that, but he says... We're fellow citizens, we're members of his household, and we're the building blocks of his temple. That's what happens when you walk into this experience, this existence of the grace of God. And each of these, if you like, levels 
ideas, illustrations, has an increasing level of intensity. As a citizen, as a citizen of this nation, you have a responsibility to abide by the laws of the nation. Did you know that? And if you're wrong, it's the crown, it's the nation that, that brings the law to you. So as citizens, we have a right, we have a responsibility, if you like. Paul's given us his image of being a nation now. This new nation, this new idea, not dependent on race or anything else. It's a new nation, entirely separate from that. And actually, it comes under this new grace covering. This law of grace governs it. But then he goes further. And he says, actually, you're part of a household. Now, you can be part of a nation and not know many of the folk in this nation. You might know a thousand, maybe two thousand. But as a member of a household, there's an expectation there that you pretty know most of the people. And in that, there is a deeper relationship. You come from various households today. Maybe there are a few people there at home, maybe there aren't. But you've all experienced households. You know what it is to be possibly a kid growing up in a Heron's household. You had your nappy changed and your bottom white. There are no facades in those environments. People know your strengths and weaknesses. There's transparency. When Paul says you're a part of a household, this is what he's alluding to. Paul says when you're members of the Christian household, when you're members of the church household, there's a spiritual transparency. We're called to have a spiritual transparency. That people know about our lives, about our failings. And they know because we've told them. Because they've been, people have been given permission to hold us to account. We're not supposed to keep them private. It's not what happens in a functional house. Members of a family, we need to deepen our relationships. We need to widen our relationships. We need to share our belongings. That's what a family does. It shares its belongings with one another. That's what a family, how it functions, how it lives together. It's not the same as being in a club. And the Christian, the Christian walk is not the same as being in a club. Church is not a club. When you're a hobbyist in a club, you, you might do stuff together. I'm a member of a golf club. We play golf together. We might have a beer and a plate of chips together. That's as far as it goes. In a family, you share each other's space. Things, stuff, possessions. Nowhere to hide. My boys nick my underwear. <laughs> I don't choose to share them, but we do. <laughs> but you eat together. You play together. You do jobs together sometimes. It's real life. It's not the facade of the office or the tennis club. It's not just showing up to events. It's not just students in a college, you know, 
you, you work, do you do a bit of study together? It's not how it works. You're not a paying client. But members of his household, brothers and sisters, that implies. What does that mean for our lives? Really? And then, if you like, the metaphor changes, but it's, it's, a, it's an idea of being even closer together. Being bricks, pressed, fashioned together, joined together, cemented together. Well, there's no room for manoeuvre there. And interestingly, it says, or Paul says, we're blocks of a temple, i.e. where the spirit of God resides. And in that, there is this idea that None of us on our own, well it doesn't say each block is where the spirit resides, it says the spirit resides in the temple. I think Paul's being really quite clever here, he's alluding to the fact that actually it's together the fullness of God is understood, known, demonstrated, shown. There's a great story by... C.S. Lewis in, um, is it The Four Loves? Is that why it's yours? The Four Loves, is it? I can't remember what the book's called. No, it's The Four Loves, I'm sure. And he talks about um, his three friends, uh, Jack, Ronald, and Charles. Well, he's Jack. He calls himself, they called him Jack. There's Ronald and Charles. Ronald is um, Tolkien and Charles. And there's this amazing story about their friendship. These are their three best friends, if you like. Three friends, inseparable friends. Friends that are just love and, and enjoy each other's company and they share and they write and they just have this the great time together. You know those friendships? And there's three of them. And one day, Ronald dies. And there's just Charles and Jack left. And um, Jack, says Lewis, he writes and he says, you know, I thought this would be great because not that he died, but actually I just have Charles to myself now. And actually, we can do it all together. And actually, I don't have to share him with anybody else. Just our, us two as a tight two, as a friendship. And so they walk on in this relationship. But after a while, he realizes, you know what? I've lost something. And what they'd lost was that the part of Charles, the part of Charles that Jack really liked was the part that Ronald brought out. Actually, the dynamic of the three brought out different things to the dynamic of the two. That there was far more depth to just the relationship with the three of them. The conversation somehow was more stimulating. The ideas that burst out into this friendship was just bigger. We're not called to live a Christian life on our own. I know it's, some people will say, well, it's just me and God and that's great. But you're selling yourself short. And you're selling everybody else short. I know people talk about, well, I just need my private prayer life. And I can do God on my own, thanks. 
I'm not sure you can. I'm not sure you can even be Christian. You know, Paul understands the word here. We need each other to become what God is calling us to be. The church is his plan. And by that I mean people together. And of course, that means it takes commitment and effort. And I know for some of us, we don't want to talk about our spiritual lives with other people. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. We don't want to share our lives or our space and our stuff. We've worked hard for it. We haven't got time. But the gospel... Gospel of grace calls us for a change of heart. And it says, you know, come and be transformed. Remove those agendas and all those bits and pieces. Come and find a home. And in that home, find people who will bring you to life. Who will bring to you the fullness of God. And two or more gather, scripture says, that we find the Lord's blessing. I wonder where you are this morning with relationships within the church. Do you consider yourself a fellow citizen? <laughs> a member of the household? Or a building block of his temple. Sometimes it's easy to feel like we, we're happy with the citizenship. To be a member of his household might be a bit too much. Or demand a bit too much. To be a building block. Golly me. There's a permanency. You know, when they take a boulder and they take a rock and they chip it and they cut it and they mold it so it fits in a certain place for a certain purpose. What you're saying, Paul, that my life might be chipped and shaped and squashed a bit, maybe, and pressed and shaken. Yeah. But in that, in that, we know the Spirit of God, His fullness. We come home. We come home. Some of you have been building blocks for many, many years. Many years. 
You know what it's like to be pressed down. You know what it's like to the foundations to creak and to be bearing the weight at times. I just want to honour you this morning. Just honour you. Some of us need to make a decision to to do what others have done. To become bricks, blocks. To cement ourselves in, if you like. I just want to encourage you with that this morning. This text always says that Christ is the cornerstone. We're going to sing those words in just a few moments. To make Christ the cornerstone. It's a nice aspiration. Nice idea, maybe. But it's the core and it's the it's the only way home. Really home. Really, really home. And as a church, we just want this place to be a place of home and of peace and of the Spirit of God. So I'd encourage you this morning to press in. I'm going to pray and the band are going to come up this morning. Father, we thank you that you've made a way. Father, you've made a way for peace to come, that for we don't never need to be right anymore because your righteousness is enough. That you are sufficient. That actually our security, our identity is not bound up in things of the world, but it's bound up in you. Father, that we can find security, that we can find wholeness, completeness, fullness in your grace. Father, we thank you that we were brought alive spiritually by you and through you, through your son. And Father, we thank you that you call us, you call us with open arms to your church, to your family, to your household. Father, we thank you the adoption papers are done. We are sons and daughters. But Lord, today, you invite us to be building blocks of this thing you call the church, this thing that will that is tasked with changing the world, changing this town. Lord, we thank you for for that extraordinary invitation. Us, us, Lord. The wretched lives that we have. You call us to be your represent, to be your church, to be your place where your spirit dwells. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.